0: Good morning, Hill family. <clears throat> if you have a Bible, you can open it to Acts chapter 27. Acts chapter 27 is where we will be this morning. It's predicted that this holiday season, 2023, is going to be the busiest, most traveled holiday season on record. If that's you, good luck. And if that's you and you're you're traveling with, Children, you will probably begin at some point to hear the nagging questions, "Are we there yet?" No. Are we there yet?" No. At some point, they their questions sort of evolve as they get older, and they ask, "Well, then, how much longer?" <laughs> if you've wanted to ask that question in our study through the book of Acts, are we there yet?" The answer is no. <laughs> this morning we will, though, make our way into chapter twenty eight, the final chapter. It was August fourteenth, twenty twenty-two, when our journey began in Acts with Acts chapter one. It's been a fruitful, long road trip, family road trip, we might say. Uh, but next Sunday, in the, just enough time for the Advent season to begin, we will arrive at our final destination. So how much longer? Just one more week after this Sunday. Our text this morning concerns the conclusion of the Apostle Paul's journey to Rome. His feet will touch the shore of Italy this morning. And though much has taken place in between, Paul much much will take place in between. Paul will board a ship in chapter twenty seven, which will conclude with his arrival in Italy in twenty eight. Summarizing these events of from twenty two to twenty eight and really this morning, one commentator said, quote, Luke's highest apology for Paul was to portray Him as so conformed to the life of the Lord that even His sufferings and deliverance are parallel. In both the Gospel of Luke and Acts, Luke arranges his writing to include a journey motif. Two-fifths of Luke's Gospel describes Jesus' journey from Galilee to Jerusalem, while the final one-third of Acts has included Paul's journey from Jerusalem to Rome. And neither journey in the Gospel or in Acts happened on a linear path, we would say. Both were paved with difficulty. Many twists and turns have happened along the way. There's been multiple setbacks at every step. However, both Paul and Jesus, or Jesus and Paul, we would say, They both possessed a resolute determination involving arrest, multiple trials, and even death and resurrection, we could say. This morning, Paul will descend by way of this narrative, descend into darkness and danger on the sea, a place where Luke will describe all hope is lost which serves as an imminent grave, only to be rescued from the shipwrecked as a kind of resurrection. The parallels that Luke portrays are intentional. They've been intentional, as we pointed them out. And they're meant to testify, really, to one central truth, which comes to a climax this morning in our text, and it's this. That God powerfully and providentially proves Himself to be the deliverer of His people in Jesus. God powerfully and God providentially proves Himself to be the deliverer of His people in Jesus. Our text this morning involves, as I said, a journey and a sea journey at that. Literarily, Journeys, they're important. Um, You can think of Homer's Odyssey, you can think of Pilgrim's Progress, you can think of the Chronicles of Narnia. Luke writes in this tradition this morning, but Luke writes in this tradition to relay real eyewitness history that he saw with his own eyes in order to provide us theological instruction. By the end of the sermon today, Paul will set foot in Rome. However, What should have taken five to seven weeks will take a little over three months. But God proves himself, demonstrates himself to be determined for Paul to reach Rome. So through shipwreck, through storm and a snake bite, God will deliver Paul to Rome just as he said. God delivers Paul from the sea to stand in Rome this morning. And Rome represents the center of the world at this time. But more importantly, Rome represents the place that touched the world at this time. It's not that getting to Rome, the Great Commission is complete, or that the ends of the earth have been reached. Arrival in Rome does, though, testify that just as Jesus said back in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, That that reality is being fulfilled. The gospel has moved from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and now to the ends of the earth. In all of that, the power of the risen Christ is advancing. And now in Rome, or from Rome we would say, the gospel will then explode to reach the nations. But That's really the emphasis of our sermon next week. This morning we're going to have to step out on the sea with the apostle and set sail under God's providential hand. For Rome, We'll begin with Trouble on the Sea this morning in verse 1. Let me pray one more time and ask God's help. Father, simple prayer, simple Puritan prayer of old. What we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. What we are not, please make us. By your word, through your spirit, to the glory of your Son. Amen. Once the date of departure is reached, the prisoners, including Paul, as we've been thinking the last couple of weeks over, he's, they are all handed over to an imperial uh, military unit to set sail for Rome. Put your eyes on verse 1 we'll begin. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they, deter- they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius and embarking in a ship named... Adramidium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanying by Aristocris, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. So we see here that at least two Christians, two brothers, accompany Paul on this journey this morning. By the plural pronoun we, in verse 1, we know that Luke now rejoins the story as a first-hand witness on this voyage. But we also learn of Aristarchus he joins Paul as well who we met back in Acts chapter 19 in Thessalonica and who most likely Paul is referencing in his letter to the Colossians verse 3 we see the next day we put in at Sidon and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and to be cared for we see here Paul was not considered a dangerous prisoner uh, which would probably explain it was a common thing that prisoners could take their have companions go with them. They'd pay their own cost and pay their own fare, but they could go with them. But that definitely wouldn't happen to a violent prisoner. So we see here another example that Paul is traveling with companions. He's not a violent prisoner. Verse 4, And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus, because the winds were against us. Now, sailing under the lee means they sailed against the coast, which provided cover, protection from the wind. Verse 5, and when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. From there they board a second ship headed to Rome. Probably, as we're going to see later, they throw grain off the ship. This is probably a grain ship. Verse 6, there the centurion found a ship of Alexandria for Italy, put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Nidus, And as the wind did not allow us to go further, we sailed under the lee of Crete of Salmon. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. So after some difficult sailing, apparently the wind was in their face, they finally arrive at Fair Havens, a place that sounds like a wonderful place to be at sea, a five-star resort maybe. But in the end, we're going to see it turns out to be like buffalo in the winter. Verse 9, since some time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. So the slow sailing has gotten the crew behind schedule. They are now past the fast, which would have been associated with with the Day of Atonement, meaning it was probably entering into October, maybe even late October, just before the winter months when, the sea, when sea travel is forbidden. Uh, the, the winter months would have brought difficult daylight to navigate, uh, long nights, uh, heavy cloud cover, you couldn't see the stars, poor visibility, and also winds, raging winds that would have brought the seas up. Because of this, Paul offers a word of caution here. As we already know from the book of Acts, Paul is an experienced traveler. He's not like the guy that I witnessed a few weeks back when I was traveling, who went through the checkout line, uh, the 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 security check line, and he took off his shoes and his socks. (laughs) To which the lady looked at him like, dude, put your socks back on. What are you doing? (laughs) No, Paul, he has many frequent flyer miles under his belt. The brother knew his way around the sea. However, he's just a prisoner, right? So why would you, at least at this point, he's still a prisoner. So why would you listen to him? Verse 11. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest and spend the winter there. So while they know the winter is coming... And they had to hunker down somewhere. They would rather get out of Buffalo and go to Phoenix for the winter. Sounds like some of these brothers in, had a little San Diego blood in them. When it's below 60, many of you get out and go to Phoenix. You can notice who those are by the way people are dressed today. I was going to say some jokes. I'm not going to say some jokes. I'm reserving myself. By verse 13... Uh, it seems, they have made, it seems they have made the right decision. Look at it. What does this guy Paul know? Verse 13. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor, and they sailed along Crete close to the shore. They, with the wind at their back, they, they slowly make their way down the coast, sailing tight to the shoreline of Crete until verse 14. Verse 14. But soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster, struck down from the land. So everything changes with this tempestuous wind, which is so bad it has its own nickname. And this is no small matter. We From this word, we get our English word typhoon. This is hurricane-forced winds, and I, I don't mean Hillary-forced winds, at least as we experienced it last year. Verse 15, and When the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along, meaning... This wind was so strong, they lost control of the boat. The captain himself is merely along for the ride here. Verse 16, running under the, the lee of a small island called Kata, we managed with difficulties to secure the, the ship's boats. So finding some temporary cover from the wind against the shore, they employ emergency measures here by securing the lifeboats. And this tells us how serious the issue really is. And secondly, they do something that is it's not altogether clear, But it seems to be a practice of securing the hull of the ship maybe from coming apart. Verse 17, after hoisting it up, the the lifeboats, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run aground uh, at Sardis, they they lowered the gear and thus they were driven along. This was probably some sort of dragging device to try to slow the ship down. Maybe it's a drag anchor of sorts. Verse 18, since we were violently storm-tossed, they begin the next day to jettison the cargo. So by day two of being violently tossed around, strong language here, they begin to lighten the ship by throwing over the ship's cargo. So we know at this point the the idea of financial loss, who cares? We might die. And this was followed secondly by the ship's tackle. Verse 19, on the third day they threw the the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. And then it says in verse 20, look at it when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay upon us, all hope of being saved was at last abandoned. So Luke describes, he sets before us, a scene of complete darkness, no stars, no sun, no light for days. It's a place of desperation. After after exhausting all of the wisdom that they had, all the resources that they had, all that they knew about sailing, it says here, all hope is lost. Desperation is definite. Death seems imminent. Now, this is the place we do almost everything to avoid. This is the place where everything is completely out of our control. This is the place that if God doesn't show up, all will be lost. This is the place of utter desperation. It's also a place, though, if we read our Bibles, it's a place of good company in the Bible. It's impossible to read this story and not be drawn to the narrative of Jonah. Paul's journey on the sea is significantly similar and yet uniquely distinct from the prophet Jonah. In ancient times, the sea represented a place of uncontrolled chaos, often associated with divine power, something that could not be controlled. And such superstition is depicted in both stories of Jonah and even here. Both sailors, we see that. And yet in both scenes, God proves himself sovereign over the sea. The key difference, though, is that while Jonah is trying to outrun God's will, Paul is passionately pursuing it. And while Jonah is trying to withhold the gospel message from the nations, Paul is motivated by the gospel of grace being proclaimed among the nations. And yet, both stories depict a scene of deliverance, a scene of salvation. Though our English translations don't make this uh, explicit for us, uh, the term related to salvation occurs seven times in chapters 27 and 28. It's explicitly referenced in verse 20. All hope of being saved was at last abandoned. And such salvation in both the story of Jonah and here comes from the bottom or the end of ourselves. When all hope is lost, the stage is set for salvation. Jonah, in the narrative, went down to Joppa. And when the storm began raging, the sailors threw Jonah overboard down into the water, where he was swallowed up by a whale and taken to the bottom of the sea. And from the bottom of the sea, from the pit of the belly of the whale, he prayed. And listen to how he described his situation in Jonah chapter 2. It says, quote, "...out of the belly of Sheol I cried, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas." And the flood surrounded me. All your waves and billows passed over me. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed over me forever. And from this place, from the bottom, from this place of desperation, where all hope is lost, the Lord taught Jonah something. And what was that? Jonah chapter 2 verse 9. That salvation belongs to Yahweh. Salvation belongs to the Lord. We could go back further in redemptive history to another scene of raging sea again that proved God is mighty to save. After fleeing Egypt, as Moses was leading the Israelites out, they came to the Red Sea, a body of water far too difficult to cross. With the children and all the the, the women and all the things that they had there. They had to figure out and change course. And as they begin to do that, they notice that the charging army of Pharaoh with his mighty chariots are now barreling down upon them. Desperation is before them. Death by sword on one side. Watery grave on the other side. The Lord led them to this situation where all hope was lost. And then the Lord of Israel's salvation appears, teaching them he alone is the one mighty to save. Beloved, we, all of us, we dislike passionately the place of desperation. We do everything we can to avoid situations where we feel we have no control But the truth is that God in His providence often places us in such situations to instruct us concerning His power that He alone is mighty to save. And it's from those places where all hope is lost to where true hope can be found. It's in those places where God forges our faith which is exactly what the Lord brings to the surface here in the narrative As we move to verse 21, verse 21, we find an anchor here in this storm. Now, a a drastic transition takes place in verse 21. It's going to build throughout the narrative going forward. Paul, the prisoner, the man wearing shackles, becomes the captain of the ship. What we see and even feel with all of the chaos depicted in the scene. The waves, the wind, the crew running around, throwing cargo over and tackle overboard, wrapping the hull. Paul, and particularly Paul's faith, is a stabilizing presence in this storm. In verse 21, when they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart. For there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. Now, I don't think we should read this as Paul like waving his finger in their face saying, I told you, you didn't listen to me, see what happened. No, Paul, I think his aim is to present the credibility of his voice. Really to present the credibility of his faith that he holds in his God. He says salvation is possible from this situation. But it will only come through the hand of my God and you obeying his words, the ship will be lost, but not a single life if you listen to me. Verse 23, for this very night there stood before me an angel of, God, of the God to whom I belong and to whom I worship. What a beautiful way to describe what it means to belong to the Lord. You worship him, you belong to him, he's yours. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul, you must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those, you, all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. So an angel of the Lord visits Paul, calling him not to be afraid, providing him assurance that he and all who are sailing with him will indeed make it to Rome. Paul tells them to take heart. He has faith in his God. And it will turn out exactly how my God says it will turn out. However, we must run the ship Upon ground. We must lose the ship. Now, I want to note a difference here in the text. It's important. There's a difference between Paul's words back in verse 10 and his direct warning here. Right? One was a matter of wisdom, the other is a matter of divine revelation. Paul, even as an apostle, is very aware of the difference. His wisdom, derived from his own experience, can be trusted or not. But God's word must be obeyed. Instead of I perceive, back in verse 10, Paul says here, we must run the ship aground. Believers, you will, you should make decisions in your life in light of lots of wisdom, in light of lots of guidance from a lot of people. That's a good thing. But you must stake your life on the word of God, on divine revelation. When God speaks, we must obey. And God's Word is where we encounter God's presence. God's presence through the angel stood before Paul and spoke. We've seen that exact phrase multiple times. The Lord stood by Paul and spoke and said. The power of God's presence, the particulars of His his deliverance for His people are contained in His Word. Verse 27, when the fourteenth night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, About midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So these are good sailors. They have a sense here that there's some land getting close. They find themselves in the the middle of the sea at midnight. They they have a sense. So verse 28. So they took a, a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little further on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for and prayed for the day to come. Again, the, the language here is a very desperation. Throw the anchors out, go to sleep, hope for the best. But they were using their own technology of the day. The sailors, they take a sounding, which probably included throwing a, a line overboard with a, a weight, a lead attached to it to determine the depth. First time they discovered they are 20 fathoms, 120 feet. Second time, about 15 fathoms, meaning they're either riding over a large whale or they're approaching land. They believe it to be the second They say, hey, we got to get out of this ship. Verse 30, And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, had lowered the ship's boat into the water under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Notice the transformation of Paul here. He's just this prisoner in shackles, but now what do they do? Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boats and let it go. So Paul steps in, telling the centurion he must not allow this to happen or you will not be saved. This boat, in the midst of the storm, is the safest place to be because God is with us in it. There's a lot there to think on, Christian. It's safer to be in a place of a desperate situation with God than fleeing from that situation apart from God. So the soldiers, they cut the ropes away. To which I would imagine probably Paul was like, Dude, you didn't have to do all that. I mean, come on. At least leave the boat's. In verse 33, Paul's leadership, though, begins to take center stage. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. Paul said, it's been 14 days like this. You need some food and you need some strength to swim. And then Paul publicly models his own instruction in verse 35. When he had said these things, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. And from this distribution of the food, we get a head count here. There was 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. This is where we maybe think that it's a wheat ship, a grain ship. Now the language Luke uses here seems to contain some allusions to the Lord's Supper. The language is very particular. But I think given the the unbelieving audience present, arguing that this is the Lord's Supper I think is pretty silly. But the echoes are present. And I think they point to the sacredness of what's about to take place. Paul knows that salvation is on the horizon. And and part of the Lord's Supper in the upper room was Jesus doing just that, saying, eat, for tomorrow the Lord, you will see the salvation of the Lord. Paul knows that God is about to deliver them. This is no normal meal, for under normal circumstances, this would be stupid to sit and eat. You're about to die. The last thing you want to do is stop now and eat. But upon the sea, even though all hope of human rescue is gone, salvation is coming. Sit down. Eat. Enjoy a meal. Thank God. We have a few Navy people in our church. So imagine you're on one of those drills where you're having to go through an emergency exercise. Ship is full of chaos, everyone running around, up and down the little stairs, commanders are yelling, giving orders, sirens are blaring, lights are going off, and there's the Apostle Paul over there sitting, praying, breaking bread, giving thanks. Given all the chaos surrounding this scene, Paul, he's confident, he's calm, he's trusting the Lord. He's giving instruction, he's publicly thanking God for the food that he's about to partake in. Paul has an anchor. It's his faith. And the promises of God, who is mighty to save. Christian, our, our faith is an anchor meant to stabilize us in the midst of whatever chaos surrounds us. And by faith, I do not mean the size, the substance, In terms of your own strength of your faith. It's not what I mean at all. I mean the object of your faith, the Lord Jesus. Paul's faith was formed and founded on Jesus. The one who stood for him. On the night before Jesus' crucifixion, as he predicted his death upon the cross, he too gathered the disciples together in the upper room to break bread. To thank God for His provision and to confidently point His people to the power of God's salvation on the horizon. Following His arrest, while the disciples are hiding, crying, Peter is denying, what's Jesus doing? He's standing quietly, confidently, like a lamb led to the slaughter, open not His mouth. Faith is a matter of of putting our storms into perspective. Like all the storms of this life, they pale in comparison to the storm of you, a sinner, standing before a holy God. That is the ultimate storm. That is the ultimate tempestuous wind. There is no moment of desperation, no moment where you lack more control than at that moment where you are exposed to stand before the holiness of a sovereign God. And for the Christian, that reality does not shake us in the least. For we will stand in the One who stood for us on the cross. We will stand, as the author of Hebrews says, for we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of our soul, a hope that enters into the inner place beyond the curtain, the place of God's unrestricted holiness, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Christian, we walk through the storms of this life by faith in Jesus, who is the anchor of our soul, who is the one who bore in his own body our sin, who took the judgment that we deserved upon Himself on the cross. The reality is we can stand now because Jesus stood then. And as Hebrews tells us, we can stand now because He forever stands on our behalf now, interceding for us before the Father. Our faith brings perspective in this life. It's it's meant to be an anchor that stabilizes Ourselves, whenever the winds, whenever the ra- the waves are raging. Verse thirty-nine. Now, when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with the beach. Sounds great, on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea. The same time, loosening the ropes that tied the rudders, then hoisting the, for- the foresail to the wind, they came for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow struck and remained unmovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. So with daybreak comes the sight of a bay with a beach. While they don't know where they are, uh, they need to guide the ship to run ashore. So they make preparations for that. They cast the anchors off. They cut down, the, they cut down the, 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 to try to get the speed, slow down the speed to reduce the impact. They free the rudder and hoist the foresail so they can hopefully steer it where they need to go. And striking a reef, they reach land. It says that with the bow stuck, the surface breaking up the stern, tearing up the ship. In verse 42, the soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. So these soldiers, remember, we, we saw a similar scene with the Philippian jailer. These soldiers, they had to guard these prisoners with their lives. Meaning if one of them escaped it could mean the death of them. So I guess one way to ensure that doesn't happen is kill all the prisoners. You can ensure none of them get away. Verse forty two, but the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for land, the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. The final sentence phrase of verse 44 summarizes this whole scene. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. Now again, we can look at this scene with our own eyes and say, man, are they really saved? Is this really God delivering them? I mean, the whole ship's gone. Now they're, they're in the, all in the water swimming away. It doesn't look like much deliverance to us. But just as God said, every single person was safely brought Obeying, God, obeying Paul's voice resulted in God's salvation for the people. And we see here that God saves and preserves His people according to His Word. And that is the very message of the Gospel. That God delivers His people according to His plan, His providential outworking in history in His Son, revealed in the Word. So now we come to verse twenty-eight, uh, chapter 28, dip our toe into this final chapter, Where there's this this arrival, they arrive into Rome now. So after paddling to shore, making it to civilization, they learn the island is Malta. It's where they're at. Being that winter is setting in, they are in need of lodging and care, which God provides for them in multiple ways here. Verse 1, after we were brought safely through, we, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all I mean what a wonderful scene there's nothing better when you're cold and wet than a fire because it had begun to rain and was cold verse 3 when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand when the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand they said to one another no doubt this man is a murderer though he has escaped from the sea justice has not allowed him to live so these people show show kindness Welcoming them, making them a fire. But as Paul's gathering wood and as the fire's heating up, there's obviously a snake in the wood and it it comes out and it bites him. Paul survived this hurricane-force storm, this wild shipwreck, only to be bitten by a snake. They conclude he must be a murderer. Driven by a superstitious worldview, they conclude that he, he may outrun the sea, but justice has found him out. But then they're shocked. Paul simply shakes the viper off, verse 5. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They're waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But When they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. They go from one extreme to the next. He's a murderer. Wait, no, he's God. It's often stated that the danger of believing in Christianity of uh, the danger of not believing in Christianity is that you will go on and believe nothing. The real danger is that apart from believing in the truth of God's word, people will go on and believe almost anything. As a word of application regarding the confusion of such a worldview here, I say this with all seriousness compassion and humility but I want you to consider the fact that we live as the Roman world was at that time we live in the most modern medical scientifically advanced age in the history of mankind and it's believed that gender is something that can be changed It's even considered oppressive and immoral to say otherwise. And and again, my, my point is not to point my finger, to wag my finger at someone or look down at a culture that we're in, but to humbly and lovingly point out that apart from objective truth, apart from man living under the authority of God, we will go on believing almost anything. the ignorance, foolishness, confusion of the so-called ancient past is far more present than we tend to admit. Apart from believing and embracing truth, we will look undeniable reality in the face and say, I'm good. I'll do my own thing. Verse 7, now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief men of the island named Publius who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. Notice again the kindness of God here, providing for the needs of the people. And then providentially God provides an opportunity for the power of the risen Christ to be put on display further. In verse 8, it happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseased all came and were cured. They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed here. Verse 11, After three months we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria, with the two gods as their figurehead, putting in at Syracuse. We stayed there for three days. And from there we made a circuit and arrived at Rigmium. And after one day a south wind sprang up and on the second day we came to Putiolo. I don't know how to say that one. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when when they heard about it, came as far as the fort of Apias and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. When he came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldiers who, who guarded him. So from this, really this simple, I mean, passing reference, we learn that Paul has now arrived in Rome. I mean, what an what a undramatic arrival in Rome. Without any fanfare, God's providential hand has brought Paul in Rome exactly as he said. I think it's helpful at this point that we should zoom out and just kind of consider the journey that Paul has been on. This journey began back in chapter 20 with the Lord telling Paul to head to Jerusalem. The details of that journey were not clear except that suffering and imprisonment awaited him. And after those closest to Paul tried to persuade him to reconsider his decision He made clear in chapter 20, verse 24, I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course, the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of God's grace, meaning I'm going to Rome. Upon entering Rome, Paul barely got his bags unpacked before he was beaten, falsely accused, made to stand trial for his life. From that point, he was forced to defend himself six times before mobs, governors, kings, and even private parties During this time, a plot was hatched to have him ambushed, which resulted in him receiving a royal escort to Caesarea. Then after appealing to Caesar, this sea journey began, which led him literally to swim his way to Rome. I believe Paul was a swimmer, not a guy on a plank too, by the way. And Paul, though, he interpreted none of this as being outside of God's will for his life. For Paul, it all served to solidify his faith in the absolute sovereign purposes of his God over his life. We need to be careful, friends, about the dangerous and really deadly tendency we all have regarding self-focus. Why me? Why is these things happening to me? Why doesn't anybody me? What about me? I know it's in my heart too. We all tend to make our lives, but we could say more, life itself about us. The truth is your life is not about you, believer or unbeliever. It's about God and His glory. And God, we see in this story, is a God who is efficient. He wastes nothing in the life of the Apostle Paul. There's no such thing as wasted time in the life of Paul and the life of the believer. I just, you know, I was just reflecting this week. Just, just think, because we could tend to see this passage, man, there's so much wasted things that happen here. We could have written the script a lot different. But just think of the deep ministry partnerships that were created during this time between Paul and the Ephesian elders. What about James and the leaders of the church in Jerusalem? What about Luke and Aristarchus? Who knows the deep and abiding impact that that goodbye on the seashore of Miletus had to those elders over Ephesus and the fruit that it bore for generations? who knows the gospel fruit that bore from the many who heard Paul's public defenses. Remember, it was military leaders and dignified people who were all listening, it said. Not to mention the sailors who were here on the ship with Paul. The apostle Paul understood his life as a living and breathing example that God powerfully, providentially proves himself in all areas of Paul's life to be the deliverer of his people in Jesus. Paul, what I've been struck with, Paul was a very free man in the midst of his chains. He was free from the pressure of trying to be something in this life. Paul was free from trying to achieve the things valued in this life. He was free from trying to become whoever the world said he needed to be. He was a free man, though he had shackles on him. His life was not precious to himself. He counted it as no value to himself, but only that his life would testify to the gospel. I think we need, I need, you need such freedom. We do have that freedom in Jesus. And I think this whole scene here raises the issue of storms and Moments of desperation. And the reality is that moments of desperation, they do expose a few things in us. They expose what we believe to be our hope. And they expose where we're putting our faith. When things are difficult and desperate, and we're at the bottom of ourselves, we go somewhere. We run to something. And that is a question for us. What do you believe to be your deliverer? What do you believe to be your ultimate hope? What is your hope in life and death? Where is your deliverance to be found? If you're not a Christian this morning there's a there's a the place in this text, the reality of becoming a Christian is in this text, and it's at verse twenty. It's when darkness comes. It's when all hope of rescue is lost. That's the point at which someone can become a Christian. When you realize that in and of yourself you do not have the ability, the strength. When you realize the problem that you have is not circumstantial, is not relational on this world. The problem that you have is with the Holy God. And there is, you are bankrupt in terms of trying to fix that solution by yourself or the things of this world. And it is that overwhelming place of desperation where freedom is found. Where we can turn to the Lord and confess our sin to Him and receive and find the God who is powerfully and providentially our rescuer in Jesus Christ. Christ died for us. He is our salvation. Trust in Him. And Christian, we need to learn from Paul here. We need to understand and see his faith, the anchor that he had for his soul. We need to see a man in the midst of all of the, yes, the circumstances on the sea but all the circumstances of life that were going in many differing directions that I'm sure he had questions about, we see a man who is confident, calm, trusting the Lord. Take bread, eat. Be thankful to the Lord. Because Paul was free. He was a man free from trying to be or earn something in this life. He was free. He knew who he was in the Lord and he was walking by faith. That's who we need to be. God powerfully, providentially proves himself to be the deliverer of his people in Jesus. So family, as we're riding along, how much longer next Sunday? Let's pray. God, we are so very thankful for you, our rescuer, our deliverer in Jesus. God, though our sin takes us to places, though our hearts, our minds, our emotional state, in light of sin takes us to deep places where we feel as though no one knows we're there and can help us. They take us to places where we tend to believe lies that we're all alone and isolated. It's in those places where we have the opportunity to understand and to come to a revelation of who God is. That He is our providential and powerful rescuer in Jesus. So God, I pray for my own self. I pray for our church. I pray for especially for anyone here who does not know You this morning. That would not call themselves a Christian. That they would see the reality of their state before the Lord and they would turn to You. God, I, I pray that as Christians we would learn that it is safer to be in the worst of situations with the Lord than it is to try to run from situations in our life apart from the Lord. God, help us to see your providential hand, that you place us in certain and particular situations that we might learn to see you and understand you. And your power for us in this life. We thank you for the Lord Jesus who stood for us. We thank you that because of Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection. That we know. That our eternal state is secure. And that we have the abiding work of the Holy Spirit in us now. And we can walk through any storm of this life. Because of the one who walks with us. I thank you for your word this morning. Holy Spirit, I pray that what you began in our hearts through the preaching of the word this morning and the reading of the word, God, that it would continue to go deeper and bear fruit. In Jesus' name.